airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3DE, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 30 minutes or so where we get to meet some of the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. Today's pilot worked with some of the genuine superstars of Australian media, as well as forging a very successful radio career in his own right. So, how do we introduce him? How about Sean Cosgrove? Come on down! The Greater 3UZ, People on the go. Hey, Sean Cosgrove, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Look, I am absolutely wrapped. You decided to ring me, Paul. Thank you very much. I've got to say, I've seen the people that have been before me and I'm honoured to be um, put into their category. No, we're delighted that you accepted the invitation. Now, Sean, another boy from Queensland on Pilots, but uh, things could have been a lot different and dairy farming may very well have been your calling. You are right. I grew up on a dairy farm on Toowoomba on the Darling Downs. My dad we used to deal in horses. And when they came from Belay of the Great Divide, they had to be sprayed for ticks, parasites. And my dad got poisoned with the spray and almost killed him. And I was only a young kid, nine or ten, and I was carting bags that laying around too heavy, had six months off school, the whole lot. And so my whole life was about farm, horses, the lot. And people approached my dad and said, bloodstock companies and cattle companies, and said, when he finishes school, if he wants a job, he's got one, you know, because of my background. But what happened was, we had a couple of racehorses we were mucking around with and I'd be at the races and they'd say, where's the horse? Oh, it's there behind Saxon and Saxon. I'd name the other horses. <clears throat> and they said, why don't you try calling it? But Paul, the, the sad thing was, it's going to sound ridiculous for someone on the radio. I was pathetically, chronically shy. Because of my dad being sick, I never socialised with the other kids. I never went to the movies on a sad day. I'd be at home working on the farm. So I was, and I was a year young. I should have been kept back at school. I did year 12 and 16. Crazy. Failed HSC though, a lot. So chronically shy, so shy, I would practice my race calls with a little Sony cassette player. I'd go to the other end of the house where no one could hear me. I'd practice calls and I'd whisper them and then play them back to myself, terrified someone would hear me, which is a bit counterproductive when you want to be a race caller. <laughs> so, so when you were up on the farm there and you had a chance to listen to the radio, who were some of the personalities of the day that you were tuned into? Oh, look, in those days, 4GR and Toowoomba, and I would listen to Big Bob Loxley, the round mound of sound. Ray Kirby, who I've reconnected with on Facebook recently. Ray, the Kirby kid on the wireless. He was there. John Garland was another guy. Um, these names 
at the time, they were just sensational people. And I listened to 4GR all the time. I listened to a fair bit of 4IP, which is a pretty hot station for Mipswich. And the cool thing was it wasn't a city or a country station. It was just in between. And they did so much good stuff. And they always sounded great. Yeah, so they were the sort of people I listened to. And also, as a kid growing up on the farm, we listened to the ABC a lot because you listen to the news at night quite often and the serials in those days. Uh, Life with Dexter and Green Bottle and those sorts of things. You know, God, I'm showing my age now, Paul, aren't I? But, mate, they were fantastic days. Now, your journey into the media was slightly different to others as you actually started in television. Can you tell us a little about life at DDQ10? Well, I got a job there. When I was going to school, the kid on the farm next door to me, Gary Schweikert, who this day is still involved in the media, uh, he was a year above me. We'd ride our push bikes in. And he finished school, and he got a job at Channel 10, to woman, 1045A it was called. And the next year when I finished, we were chatting, and he said, they're looking for a kid to be an office boy. And I said, oh, beaut. I said, I just wanted to get a job anywhere. So, and I'd mucked around calling the races a little bit. So I turned up with my little cassette recorder. <laughs> anyway, Paul O'Backer interviewed me. I played my race tape, and I got the job as the office boy. And whatever they offered me to do, I did. I was a cameraman, I was a coordinator, I directed stuff, I was reading the news at 17, I did a quiz show called Make the Grade at 18 on TV, um, I did the lot, but I was making no money, Paul, because I was buying my own clothes, my own makeup, and I was on a production assistant junior's wage, and I remember my mate, he, was at, he said, there's a sale coming up at Meyer, and there's suits in your size, I'll keep some aside for me, and he did, and I got three suits for 81 bucks, I'll never forget it, you got them for me. In total, they were horrendous. The colours, one was orange, one was sky blue. They were just vile, but it was still black and white in those days, and they looked different shades, so it was good. (laughs) Now, Sean, I'm just wondering whether you can recall some of those sage words of advice from Captain Friendly Way of the TAA Junior Flying Club. Oh, you dug that out. Oh, my God. Oh, dearie me. I was no older than the kids riding in for. Um, (laughs) I forgot about that. Struth. Captain Friendly Way on the TAA Junior Flyers Club on TV. The kids would ride in, and I can't even remember what I said because, I was, as I said, I was as immature as, as they were at the time. <laughs> oh, mate, that's brutal. <laughs> does it seem strange, Sean, that I can actually visualise you in a captain's outfit with the captain's cap on, but, but we do digress. Now, after a couple of years, you made the move into radio, first at 4GR, still in Toowoomba, and then into the big smoke at 4BC. Now, was the move to television based on opportunity, ambition, a genuine love for one over the other, or was it just a means of killing off good old Captain Friendly Way? Money. <laughs> Simple as that, money. I was making nothing on TV, and I got off a uh, job at 4GR, and I said, yep, so I went there, and I loved it, 4GR, uh, at the time with um, Bob's, Bob Scott and Russ Wilson, were there, the managers, just brilliant, and then I got the opportunity to go to 4BC, that didn't work out, I was there for six months, I didn't like it, pulled the pin and went back to 4GR. Um, I've got to say, at 4GR, Russ Wilson and Bob Scott, who went on two-day FM, they were two of the greatest managers I've ever worked for in my life. They were people, people. They looked after their employees. The fantastic human beings. You would go to war for them. You would jump off a cliff for them. No worries at all those blokes. And they'd do the same for you. They were just two of the best people I can't speak highly enough of. Um, so, yeah, I was there. And then I got back. And then all of a sudden, John Scott, and they're still in touch these days. Scotty's got restaurants in Brisbane. 
Scotty rang me and said, mate, I've seen an ad in BMT. There's a job going at three years out in Melbourne. I said, oh, yeah. And he'd spent a bit of money because STD calls in those days were expensive. And he said, I rang you up because I reckon you'll get it. So I said, all right. And I hadn't even thought about it. So I rang up John Vertigan, the great John Vertigan. He said, the job's gone, but send me a tape anyway. And I thought, well, that's a waste of time. Why would I bother? Anyway, Scotty rang me about three months later. He said, hey, that, ad, that job's advertised again. It obviously didn't work out. So I rang Vertigan. And he was good, Vertigan. And he said, you were going to send me a tape and you didn't. Where is it? I said, oh, my God. So I sent one. You're going to laugh, Paul. I had it messenger delivery, the best packaging I could find. It was the hottest audition tape of all time. They wanted a coordinator. Mate, I had myself coordinating at 4BC. Then I had two race calls on that I'd done. And then I had doing a drive shift at 4BC. I thought, this will blow their socks off. And they actually gave it back to me. Years later, they'd kept it and gave it back to me. I've still got it on reel to reel, <laughs> floating around here somewhere. But I got the gig at 3UZ. <laughs> so what did you know about the greater 3UZ before you arrived? Nothing. I looked at the back of a best bets and I saw the photographs and all the people and I thought, I better get a haircut. It was the first thing because I had long hair and a beard. I looked like something out of the Jackson Brothers. And I thought, I better do that. And I had no idea, nothing at all. I've turned up in Melbourne with a haircut. And John Burdick a week later said, how are you attached to your, your hair? <laughs> Why? He said, oh, you know, it doesn't sort of, no, nah, so I'll get another one. So I went and get another haircut. But, mate, I had no idea. I walked in there, and I've got to tell you, it was incredible. The people there at the time were just, you know, Bert Newton, Don Lane, Ugly Dave Gray. Don Lane, to this day, what a beautiful man. I lobbed in there. I knew no one. And I'll never forget one of my first days at 3UZ. The old jocks room's there, and I walked up the hallway, and I'm getting a cup of coffee over the, the other side of the hall, the cafe bar, and this voice said, wait and one if you make them one. I said, right, I mate. Never listened to it, never dawned on me. It was an American accent. So I've made two coffees and walked in, and it's Don Lane I've made the coffee for. And I've been there, like, you know, two or three days. And Don stood up and introduced himself. I thought, I don't think you need to introduce yourself. I was watching you on TV when we were on the farm about a week ago with me mum and dad, in the old black and white telly, and I said to him, isn't it weird? I've been working on the farm today and I'm working with these blokes next week, Don and Bert. Anyway, Don sat there with me for 45 minutes. He said, where are you going to live? I said, mate, I've got no idea. I'm just in town. I don't know a soul. He spent, he spent 45 minutes with me. He said, you have a car? I said, yep. So you don't need to live on a train or you know, a tram line. He went through suburbs. He got the age out. He felt me, that man. And then said, come back. Uh, he said, Wednesday, get on the phone, start ringing to get a flat somewhere. See me Thursday and we'll go through the notes, you know, the results and see how you're going. And I've never forgotten that to this day, that a bloke like him took that much time just to sit down and help the scrubber from the bush. That roll call of names is quite incredible. Also including, uh, I believe, Tony Barber and, of course, as you mentioned, Ugly Dave Gray. Ugly Dave, yeah. Tony wasn't there then. He came later. Bert Newton was there then, Bert. And Bert and I loved the horses, loved the bet. Ugly Dave and I, we would sit in the jocks room telling jokes. And he'd come down every fortnight and record all his stuff with Peter James. They'd put it to air. And we had a deal that if you'd heard the joke, you'd just heard it and you'd move on to the next one rather than let each other suffer going through the gag that you'd heard. And we'd sit there crying, laughing for an hour each afternoon, you know, regaling each other with the jokes we'd heard the fortnight before. Um, he was just a fantastic bloke, Dave. Lovely, lovely man. Now, was that around the same time that a young announcer by the name of Craig Willis also arrived at the station? Well, that was funny because Craig and I would talk to each other up the line when we were doing three-way turf tour because I'd paddle it in Melbourne. He'd be in Sydney. And he was looking to move. I said, mate, why don't you come down here? And I'd also mentioned to Steve Murphy, who was uh, in Queensland at the time. I said, mate, you should get down here, a bit of fun. 
So Murph came down to um, 3UZ and he finished up being the, the right-hand man for Jeff Kenneth for many years, now got his own consulting business. And Craig, the same, Craig came down. So eventually all three of us, along with Peter Donigan, were living in a house in Ormond called the Parker Street Hilton, or Mungrel Manor as it became famously known. And I've got to tell you, the parties there, my daughter the other day, she got a shock. I said, sweetie, I've got to show you we had a bad taste party one night. And I pulled out a photo of Craig making out that he's throwing up. He wasn't. And for a punch bowl at the bad taste party, we organised a toilet bowl. And we put a red seat on it and a red breather pipe up the back. And we had a, a tap off the back. It was the best punch bowl of all time. And absolutely brained it. If you want one, Paul, I can organise one for you. <laughs> How do you say no thanks and not offend the guest? Hey, listen, Sean, as a broadcaster with a special love for horse racing, what was it like to see the great John Vertigan in action? Mate, I was in awe of it. I really was. Um, I'd heard the voice for a start. Yeah, what a wonderful voice. What a wonderful man. He took me in. Um, we've become the best of buddies, really close friends to this day. You know, we talk regularly. I love the man. And to watch him in action was just you know, awe-inspiring. And I've got to mention a bloke too, Paul, at the time, a guy who will probably go unheralded, but what a brilliant man, Fred Totty, who was music director at 3UZ at the time. 3UZ was number one. He was beating the music stations the whole lot. But I'll never forget when I lobbed there, when John left and went to Sydney and I came back to do afternoons, I went in and said to Fred on the first day, and I said, now the music, Fred, what have we got? He looked at me and said, what do you mean, what have we got? I said, well, what do I play? You got, yeah, got all there, the format? He looked at me and said, format? And I'm thinking, I think it'd be a bit different down the road at 3X4, these places. Fred said to me, Collis, go and pick what you want and play it. I said, you fair dinkum. He said, mate, if you don't know what to play by now, we shouldn't have bloody hired you. He said, go and pick what you want. I said, well, what about if I go old, new old? That'll do, whatever you reckon. He said, as long as it sounds good. I said, okay. And that was Fred's music theory. And he trusted you, put you on air, and on a Friday he'd come up with a pile of carts and go, Collis, these are the hotties I've found this week. Give them a run whenever you want. What a beautiful man. So you would have been at the station when it made its move from 45 Burke Street to the studios in Carlton. Like uh, many of these moves, must have been pretty sad for many old-timers who knew the history of that very iconic address. Oh, mate. The old 45 Burke Street. I remember the day I walked in there and I came in the back way up the side alley near the Waiters Club. And I thought, my God, the first thing I did was plan my escape in case of a fire. I thought, if this joint catches fire, how the hell do I get out of it? And I looked and I thought, I'll jump out the roof. And there was a, a door sort of on the side of the jocks room onto what we used to call the rack shop next door, which was a takeaway place. So I thought, that's the way I'm going, if this joint catches fire, because we're all in bloody strife here, I can tell you now. Um, when you looked at it with the, the auditorium from radio editions and news beat, and, yeah, the whole thing, and look, it was just, how can I put it? It, it was so wrong, but so right. One studio didn't have a window on it. You know, it was just a box, this sort of stuff. That you look now and go, oh, my God, HR would jump in and go, shocking, you can't do that. Well, guess what? They did, and they rated their butts off. They were entertaining, and they were number one in Melbourne. Um, at the top of the stairs, there was this little alcove where Doreen and the other ladies sat doing the switchboard. And you think, that's not right, but they were happy. Everyone was happy. And you're right, when we left there, it was a really sad day. We went to this pristine clinical studio in Berkeley Street. And as usual, in most radio stations, and good evening and good afternoon to all the technicians who build them, what they do is go and build them as far as they can from a bloody window. They shove them on the other side because where the windows are are where the executives must sit. And the executives must sit there because they're earning a lot of money. 
And guess what? They're not in that office for 90% of the day, so it's vacant, where you should have radio studios, so your announcers are in touch with the outside world, but no one has far smarter minds than me shove them in the bowels of the building and they bury you out the back. So to all of you techs who build them, have a think. You're listening to Pilots of the Airwaves, and Sean Cosgrove is our very special guest today. And Sean, the time came to move on, with the first stop being 3DB. Now, was that at the time of DB Music, the Rhythm of the City format, or had Bert taken over and introduced 3DB, the new beginning? I'm not sure, <laughs> to be honest, because he, he had a few lives. Now, it's before Bert got there. Um, John Vertigan was there. I did. I came in panelling for Doug Eight. What a gorgeous man, Doug! And I spoke to him recently. And I panelled for Doug, and we used to have a ball. And I was doing, I was doing voiceovers about that time. I started really getting into voiceovers. I'll get to that in a moment. I've got to make some money out of those until Price is Right come along through all that. Um, so I was doing voiceovers during the day and panelling for um, Doug. And then Doug left, and they put a sports show in, so they popped me into the sports show. So I did that. Um, and then it all just then what happened was I got an offer to go to 3KZ, Peter Mead, and Liz Sullivan came down on Good Friday. And I said, We're doing the DB you know, Good Friday appeal. I said, Let's just have some fun, pull the proverbial out, let's just have a good time. And they did. And he took me aside and said, Mate, I want to talk to you. And it went on for months and months. And finally, I've been stuck at 3KZ. Hits and memories sound so perfect on FM quality. New Melbourne station is KZFM. That's the place to be. So that move to 3KZ was obviously a most significant part of your journey, and you would have experienced the change from an AM station to a very expensive FM station, then to a total rebrand of Gold FM. How did you view the three years of significant change there, and how hard was it to get a very loyal group of AM listeners to switch over to the FM band? I've got to tell you, switching from AM to FM, look, you won't believe this, we ran a 30-second commercial loop. It just went around and around, 24 hours a day. How to make the switch from um, 3KZ to KZFM. Paul, three weeks later, we get phone calls. When are you going to play a song? You're playing the one ad. You know what? Mate, you've been playing the one bloody ad for ages about out of God almighty. And you vote, drive, and breathe. And it was just absolutely terrifying. And I'm thinking to myself, strike me around. And you'd have to explain to them how to do the flick across. And some people also, they had like AMFM clock radios that had never been on FM. <clears throat> so they got dry joints, they won't work. The texts were flat out talking to people all the time. It was an incredible experience, I tell you. But the best of the lot were the ones who rang up going, mate, mate, when are you going to play a song? I said, oh, God, Father. It was a time of fluctuating fortunes, though, with uh, KZ on the top of its game, then a lull in ratings, and finally that rebranding to Gold FM. Yep, to Gold FM, yeah. Uh, they went across to that. And I remember at the time, it, look, it was, it was tough. And I finished up going to Brecky with Liz and with Peter McGinnis, Mac, was producer. 
and we bit the bullet. Like we didn't have all the uh, team behind us that the uh, you know, the Fox Triple M those guys had writers and God knows what. No. Mate, we sat out in the garage out the back of the 3K with the little gold FM. We'd be out there at you know, past four in the morning on the coffee and fags, writing all the stuff. You know, you, you, you'd knock over a packet of darts before the time you went on six o'clock and you'd roll up and that was all we had and we'd do it. Um, we brought the gotcha calls to life. I started those and we were absolutely feral with those. And I've got to be honest, had no morals at all. It was just, let's go, let's do it. But I've got to say the one thing we did, when I say we had no morals, well, we'd do whatever, but we didn't stuff up like a few other FM stations and other networks have stuffed up, causing the loss of life of a lady overseas and a few things like that. We had morals in that we made sure that the person we did it to sounded like they had fun. They laughed and abused me and called me whatever at the end. And then they would actually admit, I actually enjoyed that. That was fun. And then we got their approval to put it to air. That was the key thing. Because a few others tried and failed later on having a crack. And they weren't gotcha calls in my book. They were abusive, obnoxious, annoying. I want a chocolate pizza. I want chocolate sausages over and over. Keep ringing people. Mate, that's not funny. That's harassment. You have, if you're going to do that sort of stuff, make it fun and let people sound like they've enjoyed it as well. And that's what we did. And everything that, you know, that Liz and I did on air, it was we pulled the proverbial out of ourselves. We had fun, the whole thing. But also we fired with a rifle, not a shotgun. When we went on air, we said, basically, we've got to get to the tagline within 45 seconds. If we're going any longer than that, we're talking crap. And a lot of the other stations were. And that's why you know, we rated OK for a while. Yes, in 1997, the gotcha calls were recognised with an award for the Best Australian Comedy Segment. Now, these calls were generally aimed at unsuspecting listeners, but, uh, Sean, I think you caught out a couple of your colleagues along the way as well. Oh, yeah, we pinged a few. I got a few of them. We got Artie Stevens one day, and we you wouldn't believe the things we went to, like the depths of depravity almost we'd go to to get people. We would pre-record stuff, and the girl on switch was a bit... Dicey about whether we were doing a gotcha one day. So what we did, I pre-recorded stuff, walked around and stood in front of her. They rang her and played me talking to her on the, you know, with someone on the phone. So she, we had it totally stuffed. Now, you did make reference before to the very unfortunate incident in 2012 with Mel Gregg and Michael Christian. Do you think that that form of comedy on the radio is now a thing of the past? Look, the goody-goody police are out now. The other night, I had a night here, Gavin Wood, Gavin and I, great mates, and he's been... You've spoken to Gav on this in the pile of the airwaves. My mate Macca was around here, and we decided to get on the drink and have a gotcha night. And I've got a, hundreds and hundreds of them there. I'm into this. We pulled them out, and I said, you know what? Most of what we did then would not be allowed on air these days. The goody-goody police would just go absolutely troppo. Paul, and look, someone will complain about this. I would do a gay one. And when I did, the phones would light up, and these guys would go, <laughs> we love it. You sound just like someone I know. Do it. Do another one. They loved it. There was no malice intended. It was just fun. You know, I'd ring up wanting to get a, a wax and all ridiculous things. And the guys, they loved it. There was no malice. There's nothing sexist, homophobic, whatever. And people read too much of this stuff these days as far as I'm concerned. We had fun. People had fun with us. That's what it boiled down to. We mentioned Gold FM there before. Uh, who were some of the uh, first presenters on Gold? You mentioned Gavin, of course. Who else was there with you as well? Truth, I think now Huggy. Huggy was there. Craig Huggins. What an absolute legend! Great man, Huggy. Uh, just love him. And what a survivor! I mean, Huggy's been around for years. 
And the reason he has is because he's got talent. The bloke is a talented, talented man and a beautiful person. And, uh, you know, Huggy, fantastic. Bruce Nichols was there as well. Bruce, a lovely man, Bruce. And, um, I mean, his health isn't the best these days. But um, I can tell you now, Bruce Nichols was just a great guy to have on board. We had, I'm trying to think around the time whether or not Shell Jones was there. No, Shell wasn't there then. Um, but, yeah, that, that was the basic lineup that we had. Great people. And we all got on well and had fun. That was the best part. There were also a couple of years with Melbourne's home of easy listening, of course 3MP, again at breakfast with some more very talented announcers. Yeah, that came about. It's funny, I was working at Gold and Clear Channel or someone come in. Some of those people, oh my God, dearie me, they turned up one bloke, I'll never forget. He'd gone to the toilet and he'd come back out and his shirt was sticking out like a cloth penis out of his trousers. And he was one of the bosses and I thought, strike me around if you're top shelf, I wouldn't like to be having the other bottom pick of the shelf of the show here. And I looked at a few of them, and all I could hear was ding, 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 deliverance music when I saw these blokes. Well, not too many people have been as honest as you, but I mean, I couldn't give us these people. God almighty, fair dinkum. Anyway, uh, bottom line was we all got the flick. <laughs> so that's, that's all right. I finished up um, uh, doing voiceovers at uh, Channel 9, and I was doing the billboards. That was the greatest job I've ever had in my life. Now, Sean, as a teenager back in Queensland, were you drawn to watching Gary Meadows, Keith Livingston and the three beautiful models, of course, doing their thing on what was a new game show that swept across Australia called The Price is Right? No, I wasn't. I'll tell you how I got into The Price is Right. Um, I was doing voiceovers at the time and I was flying. And, Paul, you might think this is strange. Once I got going, I realised there was a lot of money to be made out doing voiceovers. And I would have preferred to do that any day of the week over radio, TV, the lot. And I worked my butt off on them. And coming into the late 80s, early 90s, mate, I was doing Ants Pants. Remember the award-winning one? Ants Pants, unbelievable underwear for the whole crew. I did that. I did the Forex beer campaign, Fosters, Mazda, Sorbent, Nurofen, oh my, all the national stuff. And I was making a squillion. And I'd worked so hard. You don't get to that point without hard work. I'm not kidding. I worked my butt off. Um, and then Price is Right, my agent went up and she said, look, they weren't you know, interested in you doing Price is Right. I said, right, eh? So she said, do a little audition. I shot a couple in. She said, they want you. And I said, how's this going to affect the voiceovers? She said, well, I think it'll be okay because it's only Monday and Wednesday every second week. I can shunt those days' voiceovers around if you reckon. I said, it won't do She said, no, it's fine. The problem was on Price is Right, I was on air 5.30 to 6, Monday to Friday, with all the reads, the come-on-downs, the whole lot, the showcase. You're a major part of the show. I was overexposed in no time, and the voiceovers just went, <clears throat> gone. They all said, he's the voice of Price is Right, and they didn't want me doing it. Nothing against Price is Right, but they, they often want uh, voices, and to put no one identifies with or innocuous, you know, you, you can just be the voice without being known, if you know what I mean. Of course, we all love a good reunion. Just wondering, has there ever been a come-on-down reunion where you, Doc Livingston, John Deeks and Gavin Wood have all got together and swapped your stories around? (laughs) I think if you did, you'd probably have a Divi van parked outside. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. Speaking of stories, I would think that The Price is Right would be one of those shows that's got a thousand stories. Is there one in particular that stands out that you can tell us about? (laughs) There's a few. (laughs) <laughs> oh dear, there's one lady one night 
And I don't think she'd had a wash in six months. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she won a prize. I almost saw vapor trails coming out under arms and she ran down. I thought, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> anyway, she's throwing her arms around Larry's neck. <laughs> His eyes popped like billiard balls. <laughs> he went up about a centimetre in height and I'm crying. We've gone to the commercial break. Anyway, he's drinking water and spitting it out. I said, mate, that's no good unless we can mix it with soap and give her a wash. <laughs> it's not going to help. Anyway, I gave Larry some Vicks vapor rub that I had for sinus. I said, put this up your nose. You won't smell anything. And when I went to air, he's looking across at me helplessly with tears running down his face because the fumes from the Vicks was getting in his eyes. They're powdering him up with makeup. And she's got her arms up flapping like a duck on one side and the, blo the bloke on the other side. He won't move any closer because he didn't have any Vicks. <laughs> I've never seen a bloke want to lose a showcase as quick in my life as the fella on the other side. He just wanted to get out of there and go. <laughs> now, you've worked on music formats and you've conquered the sports presentation and coordination. Sean, which one gives you the most satisfaction at the end of the day? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Holy hell. Um, geez, I didn't expect that one. Um, this is, look, I'm going to give two examples, and I, I don't know how to decide. When Liz and I were doing Brecky on Gold FM, and that was bloody hard work. Both of us worked our butts off, and it was hard yakka. And, mate, it was all off CD and cart and so forth. And because it was 60s, 70s music, every two minutes you'd be loading another CD, if you know what I mean, because they weren't long songs. It was just, it, that that was real hard work and very satisfying. The first day I ever went back on Sky Sports Radio coordinating, I, as I said, I revered John Burdigan. And John, I would look and think, oh, my God, how do you do this? On a Saturday afternoon, you're coordinating five, maybe six meetings when Perth was on. The first day I went back on air after 15 or 20 years of music radio, I coordinated 15 racing meetings. And I had dogs coming from New Zealand, America, everywhere, the whole thing. So both give you satisfaction in different ways. I mean, it's difficult. It's like saying, which do you love your son or your daughter the most? It, it, you get, because I'm a switch hitter who's gone between sport and music, I find satisfaction in both of them. And you can go on here and, you know, I'd come off at the end of the, you know, the shift on goal with Liz. And I'll be, you know, <laughs> she'd probably say you're pong, but I'll be sweating because you just work your butt off doing it. But it was satisfying. Um, and the same with the coordinating, because you, you concentrate to the point. You come off here and somebody would say, what won the third Albion Park? You look and say, oh, I wouldn't have a clue. I've had that much information go through my head. I would not have a clue. So it's a, it, it, it's a very difficult, for me, a, a difficult one to answer. Classic Hits 104.3 Gold FM. Thanks for joining us here on Pilots of the Airwaves. Our guest today is Sean Cosgrove. And, Sean, it's now time for 12 quick-fire jock questions. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Now, I looked at the date of that. I reckon it's 1980. I would have been, I'm pretty sure I was on air at 3 UZ in the afternoon doing the racing. Because I reckon the time frame, that's where I would have been. And it's funny how you remember those things. And you always look before you read it and say, can you check this, please, and make sure it's right? It's like when Elvis died and things like that. You go, nah, he couldn't have died. Okay, what was the last concert ticket you actually paid for? Robbie Williams, my son. <laughs> Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? 
Well, look, Elvis, I would have loved to have seen El someone like Elvis in concert. You know? I mean, he never come here, but, but I mean, somebody like that would just be sensational to see. Sean, is there one word that you had trouble pronouncing on air? I had big tonsils. I had them out. And when I did, I had all sorts of strife with electrical. I sort of slow it down for some reason. It was a shocker. Yeah, got a feeling there's going to be no shortage of examples for this one. But, uh, Sean, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Yeah, 3DB. The gear was crap, never worked. And the doors didn't close. We were down the bowels of the Herald Sun building where you went down physically and socially to go there. And one morning I'm on air and I turned the mic off and nothing worked. I'm screaming out, ah, shit. And, of course, the mic switch didn't work and I went to air live. Well, I thought it might be a little bit of spot of bother here. I was lucky I didn't say something worse, <coughs> but no, no one cared. Well, no one was listening, but I got by. <laughs> Sky hooks or sherbet? I'm going to say the hooks. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Rolling Stones, because of their love of the blues and what they went through, and the Beatles were just superb with the way they developed their music. And I think the Stones just, yeah, a bit more dash. Okay, here's one to get you thinking. Black caviar or wings? Ooh, dearie me, gee whiz. I'd say black caviar because she was never beaten and what she went through, she got stung by bees and all sorts of things and what she went through to do that in England was amazing. So the fact she was unbeaten, I'd say black caviar. Most treasured piece of memorabilia you have from your radio days? Paul, believe it or not, I don't keep records. Um, I don't keep much stuff. And I said, you know, I, I could tell you in order the radio stations I've worked at, but I wouldn't be 100% positive of the years, no idea of the months. But the other day I was cleaning up and I found a roster from 3UZ and I showed it to my kids and I said, you know what, I'm pretty proud of that because there's a kid, a scrubber kid coming from Queensland, you know, from the bush. And it was the early, when I went to do afternoons at 3UZ and early breakfast was Peter Byrne and Bob Rogers uh, from five to eight, eight o'clock, Don Lane. 8.30 till 9, Don Lane and Bert Newton. 9 till midday, Bert Newton. Midday till 4, The Scrubber, me. And 4 till 6, Ugly Dave Gray. That was a heck of a lineup. It wasn't a bad lineup, was it? And you know what? And after, we had people who I still speak to these days, beautiful man, Gene Fisk. Now, oh, I've got it. Gene Bradley Fisk, what a hero. Paul, one of the greatest moments of my life in radio was walking into the studio and seeing Fisco, and we could smoke on air in those days, right? And Fisco, and I said to him a while ago, I said, mate, I was in awe of you. I want to bow down, light candles, get palm fronds, rose petals and a donkey in. That was the greatest moment I've ever seen. I walked in the studio. Fisco's got a 30-second mic commercial. And at the start of it, he whipped out the tobacco and the Rollies paper. And I thought, got to be good. So he's reading the mic in a big, deep voice, Jim Bradley Fisk, reading the commercial on him. And he's rolled a fag, licked it, got it rolled in his mouth and lit it before the tag on the 30-second mic ad. And to me, Fisco, you are my hero, and that is best on ground. Any person you would have liked to have got behind the microphone and interviewed but never had the chance to do so? Ooh, dearie me. Um, you know what? Mick Jagger, probably. Mm -hmm. I reckon Mick would have a wonderful story to tell. Whether you'd want to get him cranked up on the white, you know, the nasal candy, or you just want to have him sober. I don't know where you get the best result. Uh, but whether it was on some mind-altering medication or straight, but I reckon he'd be a fantastic bloke to interview. Best words of advice from a program manager? Now, you know what? In this one, I'm going to flick the program managers. The best words of advice I ever got, firstly, from my dear old dad, 
who only went to school till grade four. That was all poorly educated, mispronounced names the whole lot. He helped me get a start in radio and TV. Did everything he could. He said to me, I don't know what it is you want to do, but I'm going to help you all I can. And he gave me one of the greatest bits of advice ever. He said to me, if they know you're joking, you'll get away with murder. If they think you're fair dinkum, you're going to be in a lot of strife, mate. And that was wonderful advice for later on. And Vince Curry, who was the race quarter in Brisbane, gave me two of the greatest bits of advice ever. For those who don't know Vince, he was like the Bill Collins race quarter of Melbourne. He was the man to go out and call the races, compare a TV show that night. He, you know, he would do whatever. He was just a gentleman and an absolute genius. Vince helped me start as a race quarter. And he said, I'll give you two bits of advice. And I've carried them through and told them to younger people. Whether they take it on board or not, I don't care. He said, don't ever copy anyone. You'll only ever be as good, never any better. He said, take the finer points of those you admire and who are successful and polish them and put them in your toolbox and make up your box of tools so that you are better than all of them put together. And he said, the other bit of advice, and this is one that stood in great stead over the years, he said to me, don't ever forget, stars come and go, poorest girls have always got a job. Now, mate, I've seen that many stars come with an ego, that big, it wouldn't fit inside the MCG. They've been there two months. See you, sunshine, on the next bike. See you, Uru. And, you know, I've been around since 73, like a lot of us. But there's been a lot of, and we're chorus girls. A lot of the stars, we've seen them come and go. Finally, Sean, uh, two albums that you would consider the soundtrack of those teenage years up in Queensland. Paul, you know, it's funny. I, I couldn't come up with an album because... I'd think bands, mainly, rather than albums for me. Because um, here I was, caught on races, you know, on air, reading news, doing all that sort of stuff. It was more the bands, like, you know, I just love Creedence Clearwater Revival. America, what a great band. Chicago, what a great band. Um, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, all those. And, mate, I've got to say, I still remember at 4GR, taking busloads of kids to concerts to the Bay City Rollers in Brisbane. My God, what a nightmare that was. God almighty. I looked at them on stage and thought, I think your brother is your father. Um, it was just, and afterwards, dragging kids out of the first aid room, throwing up and water all over and the whole lot. And we're not getting paid any extra for this. This is amazing. So the Bay, the Bay City Rollers certainly stood out for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Yeah, well, up until about 30 seconds ago, I was thinking that we almost covered everything, but then I think the Bay City Rollers reference is definitely that missing piece of the jigsaw. Hey, Sean, I don't need to tell you what a great diverse career that you've had so far, with still many more years left, I'm sure. Thanks for being part of Pilots today. Well, thank you very much, and I'm honoured to be on it, mate. That's been Sean Cosgrove on Pilots of the Airwaves, and if you'd like to give us a like or make a comment, feel free to do so at any time. We'll catch you next time.